Um, welcome to the uh, Revo podcast. I'm joined by uh, two of my friends, Harry and Cultured Thug. Um, and we're going to do something different in this episode and just try something different. We're just going to, it's, it's a new uh, segment called Tweet Talk. And we're just going to like go through my tweets and pick out sort of, I don't know, just go over my recent tweets that I've done uh, and just like pick out, like talk about them and talk about recent events uh, that have happened in politics um, and just see where see where the conversation takes us really. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, Is it okay if I bring up a tweet? That Yeah, as long as it's not... Is not uh, yeah, provided they're not shit posts. Um, you just got to well, wade well, through the, the shit posts. Here's the thing: it, it is a semi shit post, but I think there is a serious point to be had about it, which is why I bring it up. Okay. Um, so your absolute latest tweet, I think, or it might not be now, was a Barbary pirate crosses his latest English captive, 1450 AD chlorides, and of course, it's it's just a man in a kebab shop feeding the. Uh, heavily inebriated woman, <laughs> a chicken nugget. But but here's the thing: it's funny you should put that because actually a um, few days ago now, I uh, I posted something on Twitter which, for my account anyway, got a fair amount of uh, attention. Um, it was a Nicholas Fuentes tweet. Now I don't know how he's not got his Twitter deleted yet, but he said uh, America does not have an original sin. Slavery has existed since the beginning of civilization and was even practiced by indigenous people in the Africa and Africa and the Americas. I'm sick and tired of hearing about slavery, especially from Republicans such as Tim Scott. And I just uh, replied, oh, it makes even less sense in the context of Europeans. Millions of Europeans were enslaved by North Africans in the Barbary slave trade. And that got, got 30 likes and it, it triggered a bit of a discussion because people were saying, oh, yeah, were these Europeans still enslaved in the 1800s, which they were. That was, uh, if I believe correctly, America's first proper foreign engagement, really, was uh, the Barbary War. Um, and I don't think the Ottoman Empire abolished slavery until the early 20th century. I think they might have tried to abolish it sooner, but I know there were still Circassians and stuff in slavery. So I just thought, I, I always think it's quite an interesting point because so few people have heard of this, you know, mass, I mean, we're talking about millions of people being abducted into slavery um, and nobody's heard of it like literally nobody has heard of it you bring up the Barbary slave trade in conversation in Britain or America or whatever and it, it no you know but all the pop media kind of saturation about the slave trade especially you know the last year uh, or whatever and yet this this you know huge element of our story of our you know national story because you know it, it was an omnipresent you know threat up until the 1800s if you're living on the coastline you know, it's completely ignored. No one ever talks about it. Nobody ever brings it up. There's no documentaries or, you know, horrible histories segments about it. It's just completely forgotten. Um, so I thought, although that tweet was obviously a, just a shit post, I thought, I thought that was quite a relevant sort of talking point to kind of, you know, bring up. Yeah. Um... But it's not useful, is it? Like, it doesn't serve any purpose. The only things which communicated and gain any traction today are the ones which are useful to those who control the means of communication so uh, unless unless it's going to be a 
a, you know, a Twitter trend or something, because a few right-wing Spurgers get together and make it a Twitter trend, it's not going to, yeah, it's not useful. So it's not going to get any traction at all. I saw I mean, um... the whole Moorish. Yeah, it, sorry. It, it's very confusing. Because obviously, sorry, uh, sorry, Dom. Um, it's very confusing because obviously, also especially in British kind of like medieval history, they'll take anyone who's a Moor, meaning like Northern Africa, and they'll ins immediately insinuate they're sub-Saharan African. So the whole kind of discussion, the context of the discussion, is so distorted and so kind of. Um, kind of, yeah, just, just sort of bent towards a, a particular agenda. Um, I mean, people love to think, oh, you know, there's silly people in the 19th century with their scientific racism and, you know, imperialism and whatever. Um, but, I, you know, how can people pretend as if, you know, modern history or modern social science is uh, any better when, you know, just particular things are just picked out and, you know, blown up, whereas others are just completely ignored and forgotten about? Yeah, um, it's it's ridiculous the lengths they go to, um, uh, you know, pull this stuff out of their ass. Like um, Cheddar Man in particularly, um, you know, it, 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 the, the data suggested I think that that type of ancient European person had darker skin, but that could mean anything from sort of like uh, Spanish, you know, Spanish skin, you, you know. It, but they just, of course, they assumed that it was. An actual sub-Saharan African in England. Um, it's just, it's just um, the pseudoscientific, uh, you know, how it's just the pseudoscience of it, really. Um, how far they go to, um, and I, it's, I, I saw this interesting tweet, tweet recently, um, and it's, it's um, about you know the diversity uh, built Britain coins, um, and it. The, the point is that this isn't an example of sort of the Tories pandering uh, to the left. This is, this is all part of the, um, it's, it's all part of the plan as it were, like um, the, the Tories are making room for the cowardice of the future. So then in 20 years time, when there's larger ethnic conflict in Britain, uh, the Tory, the Boris Johnson or the Rishi Sunak who will be prime minister at the time, will be able to point to these like rusting 20 year old uh, pennies and say, look, Britain. Britain's always been diverse. This is how we could, how they'll be able to, you know, try and unite this mess that they've created. You know, which uh, the right has been warning about for decades. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, to go back sort of to the Cheddarman thing. I mean, it was such a ridiculous story because I mean, even if even if like I mean, I don't believe you can even determine skin color through a skeleton. That's not determinable. But even if it's true, right? And this, this guy is exactly as the model said. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, for one, it's ridiculous to even put that in the context of kind of modern race relations. The person would not have been an African in the same way that, you know, Papuans or Melanesians aren't Africans. They share a, you know, a skin complexion, but they're a different, you know, group of people. Um, it's just, it's just, they do exactly what they kind of criticize people on the right for doing, for kind of taking these things, taking them completely out of context, completely out of any kind of historical and just kind of applying uh, kind of modern lenses onto it. It's the same as all these like queer medievalists or whatever, who'll take like a, a line of Chaucer and start trying to say, oh, that's, you know, uh, homoerotic or whatever, or that's, you know, evidence of, you know, 
gender nonconformity or whatever. It's just completely taken out of the context for, you know, what cultural norms were back then. Um, but I mean, if, if these people were honest, if, you, if they really did want to have this discussion about slavery, about, you know, reparations or whatever, then you just think that this, this massive event in our history, because if you, if you live on the coastline of England, it's very likely you had ancestors who dealt with this directly because it, it, was, a, it was a big problem, you know, a big, big problem. Um, I mean, I think the estimates are millions of Europeans were taken and enslaved in uh, the Maghreb. Uh, um, and obviously the, the conditions these slaves were, were held in were, you know, deplorable, you know, terrible. Um, but that's, that's just completely, completely ignored because it's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't, like uh, Cultured Fogg said, it doesn't serve a, uh, serve a purpose. Yeah, and, and the, the Tories aren't going to save us either. <laughs> Back to what Dom said. I mean, all Tories care about is smooth sailing, and they're willing to gobble up all the orthodoxies from their opponents and just adopt them as their own to get along with it. You know, um, uh, Quinton Hogg, Lord Hailsham, I think is, is, that's his title. He said, he said something like uh, once he said, that Toryism or conservatism isn't so much an ideological prescription as it is a, a set of behaviors and a way of being and a sort of set of instincts and um and like he, he thought he was he was saying that and that he was painting it as a virtue because our oh, conservatism is, is pragmatic and all the rest of it but it's it's not like <laughs> what he was saying was true but all it means is that Tories don't believe in anything they just want to sort of they have this specific way of thinking and way of looking at the systems of power and their place within them they want to keep and the way society and culture is going and they just adopt the positions of their opponents you know as as it said 10 years earlier so that it's just, it's just a 10-year time lag for for you know left-wing progressivism whatever you want to call it i mean i partially agree with that although i think it's also i i sometimes feel as if there's almost two steps to this. The first step is realizing that, you know, oh, you know, conservatives are cowards. They don't stand up for what they believe in. They don't believe in anything. I think that's sort of true. But I also think it denies the fact that actually for a lot of conservatives, there is a uh, real conviction. It's just a conviction that's completely opposite to what we believe in. So, I mean, if you look at immigration, for example, many conservatives, it's, it's not just a oh, you know, we, we want to, you know, get away with, uh, we want to, you know, sort of um, be cowardly or we can't be bothered to fight this battle. I'd argue a lot of conservatives really do passionately believe in mass immigration because primarily, I think for a lot of conservatives, their, their top priority is above all else. And you can see this going back in, into the 19th century. Um, conservatism's main purpose was to, you know, stop revolution, to stop kind of and but and they could do that by any means that means that you know in 1830 for example while conservatives might be against uh you know election to non-propertied people or whatever if it meant kind of holding back the revolutionary masses you know control it keeping their kind of class status on top of the top of the pie or whatever um that would mean that they could reverse that and you know suddenly become a party of a democracy I think it's it's much the same. I think conservatives are fundamentally driven by a desire to stay in power, to protect their own kind of economic interests. And that is a that is a sincere belief that really does drive people. 
And I mean, immigration is a massive help to that. You know, all these empires in history, the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians, uh, these are all multicultural, um, divided sectarian civilizations because they're easier for the, you know, the group, the um, clique at the top to maintain control over a divided population because you can play them off on one another. And you're actually sort of seeing a, a return to that. I mean, there was an article in Unheard the other, uh, the other month that was actually praising empire as this you know, beacon of liberal multiculturalism because they allow these, these value systems to be perpetuated. It allows fundamentally empire in this kind of abstract meaning to maintain control. So I, I, while I would agree that, yeah, conservatives are quite cynical, I also think we should not necessarily just let them off the hook by saying, oh, yeah, they're just cowards. If only they stood up for what they actually believe in. Because I think they do believe in something. It's just not the same as what we believe in. Yeah. Yeah, that's true to an extent. Yeah. I um, Yeah, and that comes back to uh, this tweet I saw, and it was pointing out uh, the Tories, by making these silly diversity-built Britain coins, they're not... They're, they're, they're all, it's it, they're not pandering to the left. This is something that's uh, a core, you know, a core part of their belief by this point. Um, and we shouldn't keep making excuses for them. Um, they're uh, uh, and uh, it's it's just this all you know, and it all links into their uh, recent um, uh, proposals, like uh, importing uh, millions of Hong Kongers. Um, I think Toryism has just led to. <laughs> Great Britain becoming little more than not a nation anymore, but just an area of economic extraction. Um, but basically, you know, I, I think you put it uh, to me like this before, Harry. But the the colonizer has become the colonized. We've almost uh, the same forces that colonized um, the rest of the world have just come back and colonized England and are extracting it of its um, of its wealth and its. Um, yeah, we just we've just become. The more years pass by, and the more our identity is broken down and becomes a little more than sort of uh, the NHS and uh, you know, clap for carers. Um, with as as there is less and less to bind us together. Um, we just I seem. Mean, to... Yeah, sorry, but I, I think there's a there is a comparison. I mean, I don't think what we're looking for is really comparable to any exact historical period but if you look at kind of like say systems like the ottoman empire for example in in its dying days there was this philosophy of ottomanism which was the idea of all these disparate nations you know uh, hungarians serbs bosnians turks all held these sort of vague institutions in common and this should be kind of a glue that holds this you know abominable kind of system this kind of frankenstein system up you know these kind of vague institutions that somehow uh, mark out the ottomans from the austro-hungarians or the russians or all these other empires which have no actual real strong national identity um and you you are like you say just seeing the repeat of that i also think a very good analogy is almost what we did in india i mean a big kind of rebuttal to the indian nationalist movement was by the british that oh there's no such thing as an indian nation you know, you have all these, you know, thousands of languages and ethnic groups and religions and cultures. And it's not, you know, you can't point to any period in history and say, oh, yeah, there is an Indian nation there. Um, and obviously, you know, it became later known as, you know, divide and rule. Uh, but that was a very kind of 
strong pillar of British imperialism in India was to try and, you know, divide the Indians up into different subgroups, kind of set them off on one another, um, and dispute the whole historical basis of the Indian nationalists. Um, because if you say, oh, there is, there is no India, there is no historical India, you're just, you know, it's a fantasy, then you, you, you suddenly kind of diminish and delegitimize any attempt to, you know, because then the British become just, just as the Mughals or you know, any other past empire that's occupied the land that's known as India. And I think you, you can see almost kind of a, a, an exact uh, comparison to what's going on in, you know, Britain or England now. You know, there's no England, the Anglo-Saxons, you know, that's not real, you can't use the word. You know, there's never been an English nation, you know, it's always been multicultural, you know, what even is England, you know, you've got all these regionalist parties or whatever. So I, I think it is a, a deeply cynical attempt to kind of remake this, this nation into just like you say, a, a geographical, you know, a, an airstrip, airstrip one, I think that's quite a good, good word for it, just a, you know, a, a stretch of land with a certain tax rate and certain economic policies that set it somehow out. Um, but what really gets me, I think, is just the enthusiasm with which the Tories are really, you know, um, moving this. Because I remember after, after the election, people were like, well, why, why aren't they doing anything? They've got this 80-seat majority. They can do whatever they want. And they are doing what they want. They're enthusiastically setting up welcome centres so they can literally direct the mass, the mass migratory uh, groups of people to where they can sign up to, you know, GPs and schools and stuff. It's not just, oh yeah, we're gonna let a few more Hong Kongers in. It's literally like sending out, giving out leaflets, you know, advertising how much you should come to Britain. I mean, <laughs> you, you really can't make it up. You know, a million, I can't remember the sum, but a multi-million pound package to help foreigners settle in England at a time when most people were having to suffer, you know, joblessness, you know, uh, an economic recession because of the pandemic and the government has you know multi-million uh pound deals to give out to foreigners to help them settle here i mean it's just unbelievable yeah definitely i mean i don't have um i don't have i i, I assume there are still uh conservatives out well this is the thing um I, don't, I just don't trust anyone who votes Tory anymore, really. I thought, like, at a time, I thought maybe they were just sort of uh, uh, useful idiots or, um, uh, you know, maybe people that could be allied with um, in, in some moments. But by this point, it's just the Tories are the main adversary. Um, we, haven't, we haven't got anything to fear from Labour for the moment, but um, it's just, the Tories are doing it by themselves. And I don't, it's not, they're not pandering to the left. This is, this is their, they, they, they're doing this because they want to, basically. Um, I think, uh, yeah, so I'll look for uh, another t uh, tweet to talk about, just so we can keep within this, this concept um, that we've come up with. Um, oh yeah, so I tweeted earlier today um, about the uh, assisted dying bill that's come in, uh, or that's being introduced by Matt Hancock, um, and it just seems kind of um, kind of strange to me that after a, a lockdown that was ostensibly introduced to uh, save or prolong the life of the very ill and elderly we're ending this lockdown by introducing euthanasia. Um, and it's almost, 
I don't know. I question how coincidental that is. Um, uh, like, it's almost as if it's almost as if those in power have said we've we had to put the whole country in lockdown uh, to save some old people. We can't do that again. Um, we're going to have to bring in euthanasia to save the NHS. Um, and that just uh, that's that almost. I doubt it was said in those words, but that almost seems like what's going on. Um, it almost seems like we were like in in the, in this this current culture of sort of of uh, of the idolization of the NHS. Um, we in in the very near future we'll, we will have sort of old people and sick people being pressured to uh, to commit suicide, basically. Uh, to save resources on this sort of uh, decrepit healthcare system we have. Um, What's the rough gist of the policy? Like, uh, what, um, what, how far does it go? What is I mean, it? I, I don't think there's any, correct me if I'm wrong, Dom, but from what I've read, I don't think they've introduced any legislation yet. I think they've basically, Matt Hancock has sort of put the feelers out saying that he's asked for official figures on how many people have killed themselves for medical reasons. Um, but I think if you kind of read between the lines, it's very, you can sort of tell the direction of travel, basically. You know, it, it, it seems quite clear that there's, there's at least um, kind of an intention behind that to, you know. Yeah, this up. government is good at putting feelers out. <laughs> That's what they've done with the, uh, the vaccine passport stuff, obviously. And, and there hasn't been that much negative backlash towards it. So that'll probably go ahead be announced soon but yeah this is and they they you know they leak stuff to the media and it's a very uh it's very well maybe not very because i don't think a lot of people in the government are very clever but they're at least aware of the need to be pr savvy with some of their things they do i think it'll just be let's see kind of what backlash we receive yeah uh, kind of wink, we're thinking about ahead. it yeah, yeah uh i mean i i would just say dom that i actually think in, in a way this isn't a new policy. This has been going on for a long time. I mean, I remember the, the headlines when, when they introduced the kind of stay home, protect the NHS headlines. A lot of people, they had to sort of walk back on it and say, no, if you really do need medical attention, please do go to the NHS. Because people were literally, you know, staying home with these terrible medical conditions because they didn't want to put a burden on a, on a health service. So in a way, we've almost sort of had de facto euthanasia oh, definitely. Uh, for a while now. Exactly. Yeah, I because mean, people... the the whole a year of our young lives has been taken from us. We've already been euthanized, to put it that way, for a year. We've already sacrificed our life for the health service. So it's not that much of a stretch to you know uh, to introduce the formal thing for old and sick people. I totally get that. It's such a perverse, perverse mindset. And I mean, it, it it's not even just involuntary cases where people have not been able to get their cancer appointments on time which is obviously it goes beyond the pandemic. That's just uh, long been a scandal with the NHS that no one's allowed to talk about. Um, but no, on a, on a voluntary level, people were avoiding getting medical attention in order to protect the NHS. And, you know, even if they had to walk back on it and say, you know, you, what, if you have a serious medical problem, please do get attention. Uh, because people were so dedicated to this kind of ideal that they were willing to poss possibly put their own life in jeopardy in order to protect it. Now, I don't necessarily think that's always a bad uh, sentiment. Obviously, there should be things that we should be prepared to kind of sacrifice ourselves for. But health service, I mean, 
how odd is the whole saying protect the NHS? The NHS is, isn't a thing, it's not a person, it's a government bureaucracy that's supposed to be dedicated to the health of its citizens. It should be protecting you, not the other way around. But that was the only way they could get people to you know, stay indoors or whatever, uh, because we have this sort of bizarre religious fascination. It's like it's almost like it's the last thing we're allowed to believe in, in a way. Everything yeah. else is so cynical. You know, we're not allowed to be proud of our country. We're not allowed to be proud of our ancestors. We're not allowed really to be religious. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video, but I think another street preacher was arrested today. Mm. You're not allowed to express your identity or any sort of belief system in any other way. And all you have left are these kind of vacuous government bureaucracies. And that's the last way people can almost, you know, identify to that sort of communitarian spirit, which hundreds of years ago would have obviously been the parish church, whatever. But now it's it's the hospital, uh, it's the local hospital. Um, and obviously, you also have the, the statistical fact that the NHS is literally just one of the biggest employers in the entire world. You know, it's up there with the Chinese Communist Party for the amount of people who are in it, um, and you know employed by it it's just this massive conglomerate but such a huge portion of a population are, in, are involved in again a lot, almost like church a few hundred years ago where sort of the whole community would play a role in it um so yeah i think in many ways the, church, the, the nhs is the new church of england in, in some respects um and people are going to be willing to die for that because people want something to believe in i just think it's very sad that they choose to die for and sacrifice themselves for a health service but uh yeah and i think um linking back to what we were talking about earlier it's it is almost like um it's almost like austria hungary in that we've become this sort of a culture cultureless sort of ethnically and uh uh, uh morally divided nation nation and what, whereas in austria hungary the, the thing that united all these disparate religious and ethnic groups was the the uh, the the Catholic monarchy, which uh, you know, um, is a great deal better than the NHS. In 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 England, we've got this health. We've got things such as the health service, which is kind of like the last few threads of our nationhood left. Um, and it, it was very bizarre last year. I think the VE Day last year, it, it, when everyone was waving their uh, Union Jacks and having garden parties, like the end of the second world war it was very strange because i knew, knew these people weren't my neighbors were not patriotic they were sort of middle class um <laughs> europhilic people and i was just i was very suspicious it's almost like um i don't know it's almost as if you meet someone who's who's your old enemy and he suddenly starts always to, to use football parlance it's almost like you know someone who's a chelsea fan and then one day out of the blue he's suddenly is all dressed up in manchester united clothing you you don't trust yeah. it and that was kind of my feeling on that day sort of these aren't patriotic people what are they what are they doing wearing flat waving union flags and it's just it is this sort of morbid zombified version of britishness that they take part in which is just the last two pillars of it left are just um the nhs and world war ii and maybe sort of you've got a bit of the bbc in there too um and sort of other public services. And I also also think um, if there is something natural about this in that um, when you get rid of the spiritual aspect of life, um, spiritual, you know, the religious impulse doesn't go away, it just goes one step down. 
So instead of um, instead of going to a priest who heals you spiritually, um, who saves you spiritually, you go to the doctor who heals you physically. Because if you believe in a materialist worldview, the physical is all all that's there. So the the doctor becomes the equivalent of a priest. Uh, the hospital becomes the equivalent of a church. If you don't believe in the afterlife or in the spiritual side of life, then and if if it's all just material uh, for you. Um, then it, it, I, I get it. Like um, you, you, you would, you would uh, relegate those feelings, uh, which are normal to religion, to the people who heal you, who keep you alive. Um, you know, just that that bit longer in this sort of materialist worldview they have. And obviously, uh, an NHS hospital does uh, serve many of the same, you know, uh, fundamental moments in someone's life as, as a church might do. You know, you're born in an NHS hospital. You're very likely to die in an NHS hospital. So, uh, you know, these things that would have traditionally been associated with the parish church, you know, the christening, you know, the funeral. I mean, many funerals are obviously uh, done in a completely uh, secular um, way today. So the NHS has kind of taken taken that over. And I do think, I don't think there is a, there is a materialist aspect to it, but I also do think there is sort of this spiritual veneration of it as this sort of higher idea we can believe in and sacrifice ourselves to. Um, not unlike perhaps, say, the Communist Party of China. I think, you know, you could almost make a, an analogy there of these kind of secular, um, secular con kind of religions. In yeah. Um, if I can make not one not extremely edgy point, I, I, I hope uh, it's within bounds, but Dom mentioned VE Day, and I remember it was, I felt very eerie, like my window's wide open, and you heard these people singing Vera Lynn, you know, in the street, and it was just like, oh, okay, obviously the callbacks World War II, but it, it was just, it was funny, but very depressing, that it felt like sort of the same thing as World War II, in that people are making out oh well, you're blitz spirit you know it's something virtuous and we're all going to get through it's you know it's all right and but really it's it was just self-inflicted awfulness like there was, there was in my opinion no reason for us to be involved in world war ii there was no reason for this massive lockdown to happen it's um like two acts of massive national self-harm but we're, we're all oh no it's okay we caught the blitz spirit we're gonna sing vera lynn outside and you know it's gonna be great and it was just like oh you know joaquin phoenix's joker sort of moment like fuck <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i i agree i mean i thought the v thing was just weird i mean especially now that the, the actual living memory of world war ii is becoming so distant i mean yeah <laughs> How many people who fought in World War II are even still alive? I mean, it, it's it's like a weird... If that whole period of 40s and 50s has basically became a new kind of foundational myth. I'm often kind of struck by how little continuity there is in a way between pre-World War II England and Britain and post-World War II, especially today, in that so many like holidays and festivals and, you know, historical memories have just completely been you know lost completely gone you know obliviated and you've just replaced with this kind of country that begins in the fire of the blitz is founded by the new settlers on you know the wind rush you know our pilgrim fathers 
then you, you know you have the trouble of the seventies, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, and then that's it. I mean, just on my, I'm obviously a history student. Just on my course, I've just noticed I've been struck by how little interest there is on any sort of pre 1940s history. People don't, people just don't care. They're not bothered about you know the Civil War or the Glorious Revolution or the Hundred Years' War because it, it doesn't seem like their country. It seems as if they were studying about Russian or Turkish or German history. They can't see the lines of continuity there because it's such an alien culture, such an alien uh, kind of uh, nation. It just doesn't feel like they're their same country. They don't have the same connection to it. And I think, yeah, V Day is just taking on this kind of weird, very, very weird um, uh, quality. And obviously it's also a, a, an opportunity for them to brag about know how many people from around the commonwealth fought for in world war ii as if they even had a choice to, they were obviously colonies of the british empire they were forced to fight uh, germany i mean many indians obviously did not want to be drawn into the second world war there's a huge protest about it because they didn't want to fight in europe but obviously yeah uh, there was there was um i think there was a uh, sort of a like a, a nazi effort to um incite an Indian rebellion against British goal, against British rule. Um, uh, yeah, it's, some it, Indians did fight in the Waffen yeah. SS. I believe, yeah, yeah. I believe so, there was an Indian regiment in the uh, Waffen SS. I, I might be one, wrong. Yeah. I and I think one of the major, I can't remember his name, one of the major pioneers of the Indian nationalist movement uh, did, you know, support the Nazis uh, against the British. Um, and I, I, what I'm struck by is just, yeah, how much of a difference there is between uh, the greatest generation and the generations and the, you know, the silent generation, the, pre, the pre-war generations and the boomers. Um, uh, and it's remarked, you, you see it remarked throughout by people at the time, by people, by the people, the pre-war generations of Britain. Um, there's this author called Henry Williamson um, and he, he write, wrote a load of autobiograph- autobiographical books uh, about his life in the, in the 20th century. And um, in one of his books, he remarks at how different uh, the baby boomers are, um, how to the England, you know, the Englishman that he that he's always known. Um, and even before the baby boomers were born, um, Orwell um, in England, your England, uh, the lion and the unicorn, which is um, a series of essays uh, he wrote um, during the Blitz. Orwell, they're very strange to read because it's almost as if Orwell, as a socialist, is sort of prophesizing this new Britain that would take shape. But from his point of view, it's a positive development. Um, I don't know what Orwell would think of sort of NHS worship today or modern Britain. There'd probably be some things he liked about it and a lot that he disliked. Um, But uh, it's, it's strange reading uh, it from Orwell's perspective, he's almost predicting what England will be like after the war, and he he gets it pretty much right um, because we did develop a kind of British uh, socialism, um, and it's yeah, it, we're just a very different nation uh, after the war, and it's just it's just it's such a profound difference, um, and I often I think I think the main difference for me, um, obviously. Um, you know, I'm 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 okay with the welfare state. Um, you know, I'm quite socialistic in that regard. I don't like how the NHS has been turned into a deity. Um, yeah. But it's for me the main 
the main thing is just the illiteracy um, of of boomers and the generations that came after them compared to uh, the pre-war generations. And I think that's that can mainly be ascribed to the ab abolition of the academic selection. Um, but that's that's I, I just think we've really and and the poverty as well, um, which Peter Hitchens writes a lot about um, in his books, how poor uh, post-war Britain was. Um, if you if you just compare, even if I mean, I'm a, as a film student or someone who watches a lot of TV and film. Um, if you compare sort of these old uh, British films like uh, 39 Steps or uh, Genevieve or Kind Hearts and Coronets, some of those were post-war films, but they were sort of in in the after, you know in the afterglow of the British Empire. These you know we used to have like a British Hollywood. You know, uh, we used to have um, we used to have money in this country. It used to be quite a glamorous place to live. Um, and then by the 70s and 70s, you get uh, like bubble wrap aliens on Doctor Who. Um, it's just, it's very clear. To, it, the, the decline of Britain is, it seems so abundantly clear. It's, I'm, it's difficult to imagine how other people don't see it, just how grimy we've become as a nation. And I also want to mention in terms of what um, uh, Cultured Thug said, um, in terms of uh, Britain's involvement in the Second World War, um, I think it is important. This is another thing it, that the myth of the Second World War. It, I think it is important we reevaluate that. Obviously, you know the Nazis were a great evil, but um, we didn't go to war to save the Jews. These were all myths that have erupted and that have all been used as a justification in the aftermath of the war. Britain went to war against Germany because Britain and France went to war against Germany because we wanted. Uh, to show off because we were dwindling great powers and we were intimidated by the inevitable domination of Germany over the continent and we wanted to show off you know our, our great power status really um, and it went horribly for us um, and we, we basically lost the first world war in every respect um, uh, and we were almost you know we were defeated at Dunkirk and after that point we were basically uh, an American airbase for the rest of the war um, and for some reason, we remember it as some great victory. Yeah, they say that we, we should have gone to walk. We needed to. We needed to protect the country. <laughs> Look at the country now. And some of them even say we needed to protect the empire. Well, again, I mean, that's what a stupid point to make. We, uh, it's Yeah, it's illiterate, really. These people don't know what they're talking about. They just buy the soundbite myths of, you know, oh, it was about Hitler and the Jews, or it was, we need, Hitler was a baddie, so we needed to defend ourselves, and uh, and Churchill was this, oh, everyone loves Churchill, you can't say a bad word, if there's another sacred cow in, in yeah, England, uh, it's like Churchill, you can't say a bad word, well, you can't say a bad word against Churchill unless maybe you're um, that ginger Scottish Green or Scottish SNP fellow who, there was a clip of He's like a, he's a member of the Scottish Parliament, I think, and he's either in the Greens or the SNP. And there was a clip of him on Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid, like maybe a couple of years ago. And he was like criticizing Churchill. And but he was saying things that were true. And, and the guest they had in the studio, um, he was a video link, and the guest they had in the studio was a Conservative MP. And all the response from Piers Morgan and the Conservative MP was, oh, well, yeah, mate, you, like, you're stupid, basically. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a great quality of debate. Yeah. I mean, but um, you, you can at least get those uh, opinions aired. You can't get any 
opinions, for example, that maybe we should have, this is debatable, but the, even the debate we should have surrendered in the summer of 1940, for example, you never get that aired on television or in any mainstream media, you know, that, I guess that, that was touched on in Peter Hitchens's, uh, what, his newest book, I think, still, but, uh, you know, no one cares about Peter Hitchens' books, they don't, you know, no one reviews them and they try to ignore them in the media. I, if I could just go back a little bit, but it's relevant to what we're talking about. Another thing that strikes me, you said, Dom, how different the greatest generation and the silent generation uh, were, um, and especially the greatest generation and you know the baby boomers. Another thing that really, really strikes me as a, like a history student is actually how similar generations were up until that point. Like a lot of the kind of stuff you read about, even going back to say the Civil War, you can still very much see, like, alive in, you know, the 19th and even early 20th centuries. Like, Englishmen, in many ways, haven't changed that much. You know, so many of these, you know, really, really ancient kind of customs and cultural um, influences were still, still around. And that's, I think, what makes me so sad is that something really, really old has been lost. It's just been forgotten. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think with regards to Churchill and the World War Two. I, I think it's just obviously a massive cope because how can you twist a, a war in which you go from a superpower status to basically an impoverished, indebted American client state island? Uh, how can you turn any course of events that incurs that into a victory? And obviously, the only way you can do it is by saying, oh, it was a, basically a huge sacrifice because we had to do it because, you know. We saved, uh, we did it to save the Jews, whatever, which is, of course, just nonsense. Um, you can't even really say it was to save Poland because we did absolutely nothing to help Poland in 1939. Um, and yeah, we, we I, let I Poland go to the these. Soviet Empire after the end of the war anyway. So Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and, and of course, Poland itself, um, before World War II, was itself an anti-Semitic mm. dictatorship, which actually signed a, a, a treaty of friendship with Nazi Germany. So <laughs> they were, in fact, there was after the night of, uh, I think it was actually just before the night of the Long Knives, Germany uh, tried to deport Polish Jews back to Poland. And Poland refused them access. So they just kind of sat on the border of Germany and Poland for weeks. So this was hardly, you know, a, 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 a liberal, uh, democratic, you know, uh, state that we were intervening to save here. Um, but it's like, it's like, I think to some point we are almost kind of missing the point here because it is completely pointless to kind of debate people about these national myths because they're not going to react by saying, oh, yes, but actually, you know, uh, we did intervene to save the Jews or, you know, oh, yes, well, the NHS actually is. But they're not going to debate rationally because these are, these are substitutes for patriotism, basically. And people aren't going to... as these things aren't necessarily rational. They are almost mystical, They're emotional, and people aren't going to react rationally. They're just going to get angry at you. Um, so I think beyond sort of increasing kind of consciousness, trying to tell people, no, there is more to your heritage, there is more to your culture, there is more to be proud of than bland government bureaucracies and, you know, pointless wars, which were failures in the first place. I'm not sure really having those sort of discussions is of much good really yeah i get you i'm i mean i, I, I yeah it's it is it's difficult um because these are 
these are you know is it how do you the, our, our trouble is really that the British nation it you know is de- if not dead then on its deathbed and it's it's about how do we revive that really can we revive it and we've got to do our best I guess um I I, I think what really uh, what I try to believe is that there is still a kind of lingering almost genetic consciousness there or ancestral consciousness kind of hidden deep within layers of kind of memory and but because i mean nations have been subjugated for centuries and centuries and still re-emerged um i mean greece is obviously a good example uh, greece was under turkish rule for some 500 years or so before it re-emerged as a as a nation state and there are of course even you know more prominent examples of nations which have been controlled and subjugated for extreme lengths of time and have yet re-emerged in a kind of renaissance. I don't think it's impossible. Um, I just think it, it it's, and I think we have to we have to start from a realization, like you say, that that memory is buried, that the English nation is gone currently. It could come back in the future, but. We're, we're really not only at the government, the authorities, but almost the, the, the population itself, um, who are completely unconscious. Mm. Yeah, and I think yeah, uh, this is our this is our challenge, um, and it behoves us to be um, optimistic. I do think uh, what you're saying earlier about. Um, about the, uh, the how little the generation cha- generation generations changed before the uh, post-war generation. Um, I remember Tolkien said um, in his childhood, growing up in Edwardian times, um, he, his England was infinitely closer to Shakespeare, the land of Shakespeare and uh, Harold Godwinson, than it was to the you know the Britain of today. Um, there's that we've we've I, that's that's why I regret the most about uh, the transition to the post-war generation is this this loss of literacy and this loss of myths and um, traditions and I I suppose that accompanies the the loss of Christianity as well. Um, it used to be a tradition in this country uh, for uh, people to um, get married couples to get married on Whit Sunday. We used to have Whit Sun weddings. Uh, all these little traditions have been lost, and when you go to a country like um, Italy, uh, you, and you 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 know the folk Catholicism of Italy. You see the shrines everywhere to Mother Mary, and we used to have more of that here. Um, and you really gr- regret what's been lost. Um, I want to, um, yeah, okay. I'll I'll look for another t- another tweet. Uh, to talk about feel free to do it yourself if you feel this whole concept feels rather um big-headed um it wasn't my idea but i thought it was it's like a good guide for like ideas to talk about um uh i i thought an interesting one you posted which i I actually wasn't aware of was about the uh, american laws applying to britain you know the extradition oh yeah that's crazy so i mean it's insane isn't it i mean America can charge British subjects for breaking American laws while the British citizen is in is in Britain. Yeah, there's no reciprocal uh, agreement. I mean, c- come on, this is the sort of stuff the Soviets did with, like, you know, Eastern Bloc satellite states. I mean, 
So no yeah. sovereign country agrees so, to that. So basically, for people watching, uh, there's a treaty uh, signed, I think, in like 2003 as part of Blair's anti-terror, the war on terror, basically. And it's it basically means that American laws apply to Britain, and if the United States likes, it can try any British citizen um, for breaking an American law, even if they did it while in Britain, um, and it can you know ship them off to Guantanamo Bay. Um, there's and there's no reciprocal agreement, so we British laws don't apply to America. It's the most colonial, extraterritorial treaty you can imagine, and it's just it's almost it's just ridiculous that it exists in the first place. I couldn't believe it when I first read it. I mean, I, I it, it did remind me there there were a, a few famous cases where I remember this was cited. I think there was one where I can't remember the result of this actually, but there was a a young I think he was either a teenager or in his young twenties with quite severe Asperger's, and I think he hacked into some American government site looking for UFOs or something. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a uh, obviously it's a dangerous thing to do, but I I don't think there was any sinister intent. It was obviously just someone with you know quite severe autism trying to you know do an X Files uh, in real life or whatever. And uh, America America seriously demanded he be extradited, and you know obviously the poor fellow would have ended up in you know Gitmo or in some max security prison or whatever, being waterboarded over you know basically having quite bad autism. And uh, the Tories were very adamant that they wanted him to be extradited because they said, oh, we don't want to damage Britain's relations with America or whatever. Now, there was quite an outcry about it, so I, I'm not sure what the result was. Um, and obviously, it's even more ridiculous, uh, given what happened with that, you know, obviously that American diplomat who basically ran over, uh, diplomat's wife who ran over like a British kid or whatever, and they wouldn't stand trial here. But, you know, God forbid some, you know, autistic person, you know, damages your website or whatever, then, you know, he's got to be waterboarded and shut away in some camp for terrorists or whatever. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like you say, Dom, it, it's the sort of thing you would see with, like, these colonial powers when they go to, you know, third world countries in the 1800s. But, you know, they demand their citizens be given special rights or they had to follow some of their laws or whatever. You know, it, it, it's just so blatant. Um, I don't know how any government could ever agree to sign away the rights of its citizens like that. I just, I think it's incredible. Have you heard of this uh, new Tory agreement um, uh, with India in return for like 500,000 million pounds or something uh, that the Tories are giving to India? Um, they'll take back some of their illegal immigrants. I think that's just that's oh wow how how strong how strong wow brilliant thank you Tories you're paying you're bribing a country to take back its immigrants base why don't you just they're illegal immigrants why don't you just get rid of them it's ridiculous um, but this is this is our yeah. strong Tory government that's getting Brexit done um, this is something like brainless Brexiteer types didn't really think of and it was a critique made by the Remain side but it was absolutely true which is that this country is a sort of nothing on the world stage or maybe we're just above nothing you know we're still not we're, we're more important than you know uh, latvia but we're beholden to all of these in our interactions with these countries we're going to have to make a lot of concessions to the united states to india uh, like obviously with brexit it was about trade deals but but for everything you know we're 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 a country that is influenced we're not an influencer 
that much anymore. I, like, I, I uh, partially agree, of... although I would say that Britain does have a lot of influence, but it's through the city of London and the interests of the city of London and the British nation yeah. do not necessarily yeah. align. No, uh, the the, but, the most egregious thing that I think of for me is like, uh, and this is <clears throat> what plays into this is the subversiveness of our common ancestors, uh, Harry. The uh, the Irish lobby <laughs> in the United States, people don't really realise like this is uh, fingers may be pointed elsewhere, but this this goes un. Uh, it's not it's not often talked about the massive influence of the Irish lobby in if you look at uh, obviously. Northern Irish peace was in the spotlight and is in the spotlight. You had disturbances recently because of Brexit, ostensibly. But you know, regardless of whether that's true or not, the Irish lobby are using that to push the um, the arms of government in America to basically uh, apply a similar pressure to what happened with Bill Clinton in with, with the Good Friday Agreement to say, hey, you know, you better watch out with this Brexit process because we have an interest here. And, um, you know, we're beholden to, I guess, still a, a lingering Irish lobby. It's, it seems weird because, um, I don't know, I suppose if you think about it, they, I guess they're still kicking around and they're an important, important constituency, as it were. But uh, I guess they're big in the northeast of America. But, um, yeah, like, it's, it's funny how this small little group we can influence America to influence or quite strongly influence in a euphemistic way us to, to take such massive decisions um, like the Good Friday Agreement and now basically uh, what we're doing with Brexit, which is a continuation of our sort of softness in that respect. I think, that's, I think it's clear that's that, true, um, although I, yeah, I think it's clear that uh, at the moment there's a renewed effort uh, from Americans and others to restart troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I think I, I, I think all we want really is just for Britain to be a, a self-interested nation. I mean, I think as an island people, you know, the English, we are just so, so uh, universalistic that it's become suicidal. If, if uh, can you imagine if the British government um, put effort into trying to form like an English block in America? Because I think America is still, majority or plurality anglo-saxon uh english if you look at americans they don't identify such themselves because they like to laugh as irishmen or germans or whatever but if you look at the actual surnames most of them are still british surnames if we put effort i thought it and was money, german ancestry i i, I doubt that personally I, I doubt that personally um i think it's it's sort of inflated because english americans identify purely as americans so that kind of messes up the statistics um mm like an American whose name is like Jack Smith. He's just going to identify as an American. He's not going to identify as an English American. But I think they're probably still the majority. Um, so can you imagine if a British government put like actual money and effort into like forming a, a British block in America, a British <laughs> identity in America? Like you've got all these like Irish American lodges, like the ancient old order of Hibernia or whatever. Um, and that's where the Irish American gets together and they funnel money to the IRA. What if we like had our own sort of British American block in America? Like we could we could do we could do so much more like 
in we could have so much more influence do deal so much more damage with our huge diaspora you know we could there, there's so many people of british descent abroad in like south africa australia canada new zealand and i'm not just talking about like cancer or like idealist policies like that but like in america itself we could have like an anglo uh, alia policy like the israeli alia policy so people of uh, <laughs> british descent um in of colonial british descent we give them the right to come back to our country and uh you know then can you imagine how much better britain would be like if all the rhodesians who uh were rejected from their country had been given automatic citizenship once they got back to britain um you know how that would have shifted our pol our politics um well the, the odd fact about that is actually immigration rule tends to be more harsh on yeah. rhodesian south africans than it is on others because because they're basically well behaved and yeah. uh, very visible in order to make up for the lack of progress with deporting other illegal immigrants they'll instead uh, focus on you know Mr. and Mrs. Rhodesian down the road, you know, because they, they, they're very visible, they're integrated into mainstream middle class society. So they're easy to pick out. Yeah. Uh, whereas obviously if someone goes undercover and works, you know, shifts for, you know, cash in hand money or whatever, it, it's much harder to kind of detect them. And I therefore, think, you know, in order to yeah. get their quotas, they end up just deporting, you know, well-behaved, English speaking, English ancestry, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and I think uh, I think part of it's I, also I, that uh, they want to avoid coming across as racist, so they pick on like the white, <laughs> the white uh, wasp immigrants, and avoid like the Somali immigrants. Like we tried to deport some Jamaican rapists recently, and there was a huge out outcry against little rapists and murderers. Um, yeah, so, the Stansted Fifteen or something. Yeah, <laughs> like middle class yuppies who bought to plane to stop them deporting rapists and yeah. violent criminals i mean it's, it's just and the judge obviously let them off for it basically uh as if they'd as if imagine if that was some sort of far-right thing where they'd taken over a plane you'd be in prison for 50 years for hijacking or whatever and, you, know, you just can't make it up but i mean i just personally i i was uh, an activist on behalf of a, a couple who were elderly in their in their 60s from rhodesia they uh, both had, the, the man was a veteran um, in the Rhodesian army. Both of them had PTSD from their experiences in Rhodesia and men in South Africa. And uh, they lived with their mother who had dementia, was in her late 80s. And they were trying to deport all three of them back to South Africa, even though they're, they, you know, they're old, they're ill. You know, her mother passed away actually uh, recently, but she was very sick with dementia. And the, the whole... Thankfully, they got an indefinite leave of stay, but for the whole time, they were put under this enormous pressure. Uh, they had to go to London, they had to go, you know, all around the country speaking to immigration lawyers, you know, being harassed by, you know, immigration officials. They were, you know, obviously spoke perfect English, you know, contributed to the community, held down jobs, you know, in spite of obviously their precarious uh, position. It was just the most ridiculous, um, ridiculous thing, you know, I've encountered. Um, and just, you know, utterly bizarre, just completely nonsensical. Um, but I, I think also what you, what both of you said about America is very interesting because I mean, that is still like Dom says, an Anglo kind of substrate, but I would say America, even in spite of the Irish lobby does have this kind of historical, um, what's the best word to put it, historical antipathy towards 
England, this is kind of histor historical hostility towards Britain, which we don't really understand in Britain. I think most British people really do think of Americans as like our best friends, as you know, our you know, special partners or whatever. But if you look at kind of American discourse, overwhelmingly, and it's obviously resurfaced now with all the memes or whatever about British people, there's kind of this uh, almost inferiority complex, I think, when it comes, because obviously America is a very new country. Um, and I think there is this vindictiveness towards Britain, which you can sort of see all throughout America's history. You know, this feeling that, you know, oh, Britain's, you know, all stuffy and boring and awful. Um, I mean, you, you like, like I say, you're really seeing it resurface now with the Meghan Markle stuff and all the memes about British people and our food and whatever. Um, but I think even if you take away the Irish element, we should really stop thinking of America as our, you know, big, you know, big brother or whatever is going to help us out. I think it's actually probably the opposite. You know, their only interest is in keeping us down, keeping us, you know, uh, down, but still able to pursue their interests if they needed us to. Yeah, I think we should have a more uh, French approach to America. I mean, um, a more uh, unilateral approach. Because um, France, France is lucky in this regard because they were betrayed by America very early on. So they know the game. You know, they know they know they understand America better than we do. France helped America, uh, you know, achieve it. They were basically responsible for American independence. America wouldn't be independent if not for for French intervention. Um, but then, uh, as soon as the you know the French Revolutionary Wars, uh, the Napoleonic Wars sparked up, then America refused refused to help France in any way whatsoever. And ever since then, France has had a very unilateral kind of snobby approach with America. And I think that's a, a benefit of them greatly compared to us, which is sort of a slavish uh, colonial mentality towards our former colonial subjects. Like we're just you know with regards to this you know this one-sided extradition treaty we, we we need to be more i you know i i i i you know i love america i would describe myself as um a great lover of american culture um and americana but i'm i'm uh i'm realistic when it comes to sort of foreign policy and the the way Britain treats that is it's almost a begrudging part of Brexit that we're uh, this is this is the yeah. the trouble with Brexit is that we're 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 it, it, it'll only mean that we're coming closer into the American grip and I don't like that I think I don't think we can trust America and I don't like the way we've basically become an American a, a colony of American capitalism really it's it's also interesting that Brexit, the complete opposite of, you know, the whole uh, control our borders thing, it's just gone from instead of uh, European migrants, we're going to have South Asian and East Asian migrants. Um, it's, just, it's just shifted, you know, it, 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 nothing substantially has really changed. Um, and I think perhaps we were naive for thinking that, you know, they might actually listen to us for once. Um, are we at fault for thinking that? I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I I don't think we'd necessarily be better off if we voted to remain either. I just think it's it's a matter of them just co-opting whatever the public votes yeah. for. So nothing I mean, fundamentally it's, it's changes. Just, it's disgraceful. Uh, it's disgraceful. Like the way the way Brexit, we've watched it within a couple of years. The way Brexit has been 
twisted into global Britain. And it, it was obvious, it was, all, it was always a vote against mass immigration, against globalization. And they've somehow twisted it into a policy for global, more globalization and more mass immigration. Um, it's, it, it's just so cynical and it's so obvious. It's quite brilliant, isn't it? Though you you can only admire the the, the sheer like cleverness that these people have. It's like, what? Okay, we'll just roll, roll with it. And and this is what the idiots in the in, under um, in Parliament under in the May years like the, I, I talked about this uh, with both of you already. Like uh, they they were squabbling among, amongst themselves about oh we have to stop this awful thing, but like this is just this is part of. The Brexit doesn't mean anything. Brexit doesn't mean anything itself at all. It was only going to start like an opportunity to open even the door, open the door even a crack for, for to do different things and go our own way and um, claw back sovereignty. But it doesn't mean anything in itself. Yet these people, they've drunk their own Kool-Aid so much. They were like, oh, this is all this, all we have to stop it. And they couldn't agree on how to stop it. They easily could have got Ken Clark in Downing Street in a caretaker government and got a soft Brexit or got a soft Brexit parliamentary without via parliamentary means without changing the government, whatever. They could have got a soft Brexit, but they were they just these people are stupid. And that, that that's the problem really now. Where even with uh, a change in a change in leadership in the Labour Party, you know, people say Keir Starmer is returning to Blairism, whatever. Keir Starmer is nothing like as clever as Blair. Keir Starmer, again, was one of the people on participating in this Brexit hysteria and it's too stupid to realise that Brexit, you don't need to get rid of Brexit, Brexit can be moulded to what you want it to be um, and uh, yeah, I don't think Keir Starmer's like clever in um, in a Machiavellian way, anything like what Blair was and Alistair Campbell was and that's why I think he's taking some of the positions he's taking now or not taking certain positions with regard to coronavirus and other things but, but it that's the way you do politics in a clever way. Like you, you look at things that don't mean anything in themselves, like Brexit. You say, okay, that's mine now. I'm going to make that mine. And just because it's a cosmetic thing, you know, it's just like a brand and you can slap it on whatever you want. What's interesting is with Brexit is perhaps an unintended uh, consequence has been since the departure of uh, the kind of liberal uh, British element you are really seeing a kind of uh, a rise in kind of nationalistic rhetoric on the continent, um, which is really interesting to observe because obviously Britain's going in the complete opposite direction. You know, we're, we're returning to a kind of, um, it's almost like we, we had our moment in 2016 and most people think, oh yeah, that, that's it now. I mean, attitudes towards BLM, for example, are almost universally negative on the continent. Britain is one of the very few outliers with a net positive opinion of the movement. Same with immigration. Immigration consistently ranks as one of the top concerns in European nations, obviously in a, in a negative light, whereas Britain absolutely doesn't anymore. And, you know, among people who do have an opinion on immigration, it's it's much more positive now than it has it been. It did right up until 2016, and then it changed. Yeah. Everyone thought, oh, it's all done now. <laughs> like, yeah. We've sorted it. And I mean, I mean, obviously, the, the whole immigration thing with Brexit was a con, really, because the, the, the problem was not European immigration. It was that the EU was a symbol of the out-of-touch elite who would not listen to the people that they didn't want 
mass immigration. And obviously, because Europe restricts our ability to allow in certain immigrants, uh, that became a symbol of that rebellion. But I don't think most people's problem was with Polish or Lithuanian migrants, to be honest. I, at least I've not encountered that sort of uh, anxiety. I mean, I would still say I don't necessarily want hundreds of thousands of people from any country coming to Britain per year. I think it always has to be controlled. But if I had to, if I had to, you know, uh, cite sort of a, a particular region that was of least concern to me, it would be other European countries because I mean these are quite culturally similar, you know, uh, quite close to us in terms of values and culture. Um, but yeah, obviously the whole thing, and you sort of saw the warning signs, I think, in sort of 2017, 2018. You've got kind of a Guido Fawkes, Tom Harwood types were like, oh yes, Brexit is a vote for, you know, free markets from the UK into kind of a Singapore model. You know, the EU is nationalistic and is a, an empire. I remember Guy Verhofstadt gave that a speech uh. where he was like, oh yeah, the European Union needs to be like, China and India and become a civilizational, you know, empire, which I think is a, is a great idea, although not probably in the way he intended it. And these people are like, oh yeah, that's nationalistic. You know, we need to go back to liberal, pluralistic um, Britain. Um, and you, you're, yeah, you, you saw the warning signs, I think, but it was easy to dismiss them as you know, just these neoliberal you know, people on the sidelines. Uh, Unfortunately, obviously, these neoliberal people on the sidelines have a lot of friends and, well, friends and potentially more than friends in high places. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, it was always there. Um, I remember watching sort of uh, uh, debates with sort of uh, Dan Hannan um, against sort of, you know, against uh, the Remainers. And there was always this tiny cohort of sort of uh, neoliberal libertarian Brexiteers um, who were arguing that Britain shouldn't should leave the EU not for um, sort of patriotic nationalist reasons but for um, for uh, neoliberal reasons basically so we can go out into the world yeah. you know, it was it was the cover of the Spectator it said when Brexit was announced it said we're free we're free to go out into the world you know um, which is they're always there, and I guess it's kind of obvious they would co-opt it from the beginning. It's just it doesn't make it any easier when they do, you know. Um, yeah, um, I'll, I'll look. Let's do uh, another tweet, I guess. Um, I've got so many shit posts. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I think. I was wondering if we, uh, did you tweet about, I thought you made a very interesting point about the Taliban, but I can't find the, t the tweet, you know, with, uh, the, obviously the. Oh, yeah, yeah. That the was quite, point. yeah. That was uh, quite a while ago. But I get what, I, I understand yeah. which tweet you were referring to. So, yeah, it was just. Some, some interesting thing came out about that, you know, Britain apparently really did not want to withdraw from Afghanistan. I think uh, one of our generals went on TV and was like, "Yeah, we really did. We really did not want to withdraw." Why? But America said we have to. So. Why didn't um, we want hold to? Hold on. Withdraw? Let me see if I can find the article. Telegraph, Britain, Afghanistan. I'll try and find the article now. Um,
Oh, yeah, here we go. So Britain wanted Joe Biden to keep U.S. forces in Afghanistan. General Sir Nick Carter said President Biden's decision to pull 2,500 U.S. troops by September 11 was not the decision the U.K. wanted. Uh, it is not a decision that we hoped for, but we obviously respect it. So we obviously must withdraw all the British troops as well. Um, he said that they had no choice but to cooperate. Staying without U.S. was impossible. Um, he said the, US, uh, the defense, former defense minister, Tobias Elwood, said the U.S. decision, decision risked, risked losing the peace. I'm sure Afghanistan is a very peaceful country uh, as in, right now. Mm. And um, yeah, you can't it, criticize Tobias Elwood because you know, he tried to save a dying police officer. So he's a hero. I mean, it, I can't find any um oh and then he just um sir nick goes on about the um um the regard for women in afghanistan <laughs> um, they've got a, oh. a there's a huge regard for women there is a decent education system and there is a very vibrant media you know i i am so glad that hundreds of uh, british people have lost you know sons and fathers and brothers so that afghan women could have a good decent education system and there could be a vibrant afghan media you know i, I think that was an excellent use of a treasure and board i don't know about you two. Oh my god it's just um yeah i think the tweet you're referring to recently is that there was this uh i retweeted a picture i think you sent it to me originally um and it's just a picture of uh this this afghan bedouin shaking hands with uh, like a u.s diplomat and so for me growing up in the early 2000s i was it was always i was always given the impression that the taliban were basically the modern nazis like these were these ev these were these evil people these were the enemies of our civilization um they 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 treated you know they were they they oppressed women they beheaded people they were just awful people um, and the, they had to be destroyed. They were the modern fascists, basically. I think Christopher Hitchens called them Islamo-fascists. Um, so when when I was a teenager and they announced on the news that they were first negotiating with the Taliban, although I think by that point I was pretty politically savvy, it still sort of sent a bit of a jolt in me. Um, like, why are we negotiating with these people? I thought everyone said they were evil. Aren't they, you know, these were supposed to be the, the mortal enemy of our civilization. Um, and of course, when, they, when the media says they're negotiating with these people, it means we've lost. It, basically, it means we're surrendering, basically. Um, and so that, that always, that, always that's, that, that sort of lesson stuck with me and sort of the way uh propaganda changes and the way media narratives change you know 20 or 10 or 20 years ago when the us first invaded afghanistan who would have thought we'd be here now shaking hands with um you know afghan tri tribesmen you know shaking hands with the taliban um um but it is is just a is just bizarre, and I, I do I do resent this conflict and how pointless and useless it's been. Um, I think, I think Harry, you, you uh, we talked about this before, but um, 
you know, Afghanistan is is called the grave of empires because obviously um uh, now America's failed at conquering it uh, the Soviet Union failed at conquering it but that's not 100% accurate because it has been conquered by many empires throughout history including the British Empire eventually after initial uh, failures um and I, the difference between the British invasion and the Soviet or American invasions is that we didn't care if uh, you know Afghan tribesmen embraced feminism or trans rights or whatever. We didn't care. We just wanted them to accept uh, the authority of uh, the British Crown or accept our or open trade to us or whatever. Um, uh, they could live their way of life. We didn't care about that. But uh, for the Soviets or Americans, it was about changing their mindset to embrace communism or liberal capitalism, and that's that's why these uh, wars have failed is because uh, it's 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 a war for minds um, and you're never going to convince these people that um, <laughs> of liberal democracy or communism. you're never going to convince Pashtun farmers of um, Pashtun farmers of uh, liberal democracy or communism um, and I've got a huge amount of respect for them for that honestly um, compared to this caricature I had when I was a boy of the Taliban as these distant far off uh, savages um, who are the mortal enemy of our civilization. I've got more respect for the Taliban than I do the the uh, the uh, <laughs> the rainbow flag drone strikes that have been uh, you know trying to kill them. Really, um, these I mean, are these are yeah, a proud I mean, traditional yeah, but... people uh, just trying to protect their way of life. I mean, they've they've seen off the Soviets trying to force communism and atheism on them. They've seen off the Americans trying to force you know, liberalism and capitalism on them. You know, how can you sort of not, I suppose, have a sort of respect for that? You know, these people have, you know, gone up against all these massive superpowers and won <laughs> and sent the other side into the most humiliating. I mean, I always think that the, the, the thing to withdraw on September 11 is such a curious decision because it's so immensely humiliating. I mean, withdrawing from Afghanistan, effectively surrendering is humiliating to begin with. But doing it on this anniversary, it's just like, it's such a bizarre um, thing to do. Um, but maybe it's, uh, sorry, go on. No, no, I, I, I just I just find it completely puzzling and bizarre that you would choose that date to withdraw. But no, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think if, if America had set out, say, right, we, we're going to conquer Afghanistan. We're going to control all the pipelines, but we don't actually care what the Afghans do. We don't care if they're an Islamist emirate or whatever. We don't care what laws they have. Uh, I think they could have done it. Now, they'd struggle compared to say, the British Soviets, because obviously the Americans have a very idealistic way of how you conquer a country. You know, in Iraq, for example, they insisted on putting Iraqis in control of the transitional government almost as soon as they'd invaded the country, which didn't work because it just resulted in the Shia taking out retribution against the Sunnis. And, you know, it, it was just a completely misguided way of managing conflicts. But I'm sure they could eventually have succeeded. But like you say, Dom, is this attempt to kind of fast forward like 500 years of Western history and turn Afghanistan into this secular liberal uh, democracy that just never was going to work. And why even should we want it to work? What interest is it to ours that, you know, Afghanistan becomes a liberal democracy, especially if the people don't want it. I mean, I think it's very curious that you 
uh, use the analogy of uh, kind of Nazis and fascists because it seems to me it's like we were discussing earlier. This analogy is used time and time again, even when it has absolutely no relevancy. I mean, if you could make the case that Nazi Germany was a threat to Britain, you certainly cannot make the case that this random Central Asian landlocked country, one of the poorest in the world, where you know the majority of the population can't read and write, is somehow an existential threat to Britain and the United States of America. It's, it's just completely, but people buy into it. People, you know, hear you say Hitler, hear you say fascist, and just think, oh, right, yeah, we need to go and bomb them and take them over. It's just ridiculous. Um, sorry, Cultured Folk, you can, you can go on now. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, it is a bit, it's confusing the motives there. I wonder, it would be interesting to get into the mind of these people and know exactly. But you can weave, you can, we can guess some things from the outside about why they're doing certain maneuvers in X country or X conflict, but it's very, very complex. And it's like, uh, I guess maybe it's like <laughs> some of um, Vladimir Putin's political technologists who was featured in Adam Kirsten's documentary, like nonlinear warfare, keep them guessing. Maybe sometimes do something. It doesn't even have to have a reason, but it's just to confuse confuse people oh, okay now we're in iraq okay now we're in afghanistan but but maybe uh maybe the reason for the withdrawal now is no more uh, complicated than uh, in pr terms they can't be seen to be prosecuting too many wars at one time and they're ramping up for a war in syria uh, maybe although i i would be suspicious if they wanted to restart any middle eastern wars i think the focus is going to go uh, on the pacific probably I think it's um I think it's important not to ascribe too much intelligence to these people. Um uh like with the sort of the idea that uh, we invaded Iraq for the oil. That might be the case, I don't know, but um it might I would almost respect it more if we did invade Iraq for the oil because that's like a standard geopolitical reason to invade a country, standard imperialism countries, you know, it's an economic resource. Uh, if we just invaded Iraq for stupid, liberal, idealistic reasons, which I suspect is the case, um, then I have a lot less respect for it. Like, we could have, I get, I sort of get the original pretext for invading Afghanistan, or sort of, maybe, um, or maybe not, I don't know. It's sort of, the pretext was we were going to, they were helping to hide Osama bin Laden, but we, we did, we invaded and we didn't discover Osama bin Laden for another 10 years until we found him in neighboring Pakistan. Um, and even, even Al-Qaeda itself was always quite a nebulous organization. Uh, it's, and the, the whole pretext of a war on terrorism that you could eliminate international ter terrorism with by invading third world countries is just a ridiculous, it's ridiculous. And it's such a waste of, um, of life, 20 years of conflict, thousands upon thousands of people afghans and americans and britons all dead and why was britain involved i mean if america wanted to go on these sort of sort of idealistic wars across the globe then it could, it could have done it by itself why did we have to get involved it was it's just um and as you were saying earlier harry like what threat do afghans pose to british people um i think it was i think the uh 
the, the man I, I think the Manchester bombing, the Ariana Grande, Ariana Grande Manchester bombing, uh, was directly caused, or wasn't he a Libyan migrant or something like that? So yeah, it was directly, yeah, was. yeah. So it was directly caused by us bombing and destroying Libya as a country. So in if anything, we've just made it worse and garnered these enemies for ourselves. Um, uh, One interesting thing as well is uh, they're already using the Afghan withdrawal in the UK to argue that anybody who worked with British forces in Afghanistan, out of risk of reprisal from the Taliban, should be given immigration rights to Britain. <laughs> it's our weapon now. Just, That's what yeah, we do. Just any, any, yeah, just any uh, sort of opportunity to allow more people in. Yeah. Anything. I, I you know, don't... You can be... I joked yeah, uh, yesterday. Taiwan. Yeah, we sent. Uh, oh, we're such a cut country, honestly. Like, uh, uh, yeah, this is not, this thing me and Harry were watching a few days ago. It's a news report, and the the foreign minister of Taiwan was saying, "Oh, you know, China is very close to uh, invading Taiwan. You know, they're hyping up yeah, their military presence in the region." Um, and uh, but we're also very thankful for the United Kingdom for sending one little. Uh, boat, one little cruiser around Taiwan, very far away from the, the sphere of conflict, <laughs> um, just to just to show they they care. And I just thought that's such a that's such a stereotypically modern British way of doing things. Like we send a we send one cruiser on a safe, very safe distance away from uh, the conflict, just pass by, just to show yeah we we okay we we care, but without actually doing anything. Um, not that we should do anything, but it's just like, it just, it's just, you know, modern, the, the cowardice of the modern British state. Um, and I'm sure when Taiwan falls, we'll give free visas to uh, the entire Taiwanese population. Um, <laughs> um, because that's our, that's what we do. That's, we're, we're, that's what we did with uh, Hong Kong. Um, we're the immigration country now. We just—that's uh, our greatest weapon—is to allow allow uh, our enemies, yeah. political dissidents, to uh, come to our country. Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, so so. I'll, I'll just say one last thing on Afghanistan. Another point uh, I read in a, an article the other day was: it's very curious that the British chose to focus their operations in Helmand province which was the site of most of the major fighting in the 19th century between the Afghans and the British Empire. So to this day in Helmand, preceding the invasion, the modern invasion, Britain has a terrible reputation in that one particular province. Terrible reputation. You know, we, we are intensely hated there for the, you know, the old conflict uh, between the empire and the Afghans. And yet, for some reason, you, know, you have the entire country, uh, multiple nations, the British decided to choose this one province of Helmand, or we're assigned it, I mean, we don't know, um, where we are historically hated, which I think I think just shows really the, the level of understanding about what these people really have about the conflicts they're so desperate to jump into. Um, okay, let's uh, look for another uh, tweet amid all the shit posts. Um, I think George Galloway got into some trouble recently because uh, Scots. Yeah, Scots? Uh, I, I don't know what he said recently, but um, he said something about Scottish dialects, and I think BBC Scotland is presenting 
Scottish people are speaking with a very thick, sort of unintelligible Scots accents. And George Galloway said, this isn't an accurate representation of Scottish people. And then a load of Scott Nats on Twitter all got really angry at him and started their laughing, started typing, uh, <laughs> typing and phonetically in the way they speak. Um, and I pointed out that um, if you typed out English, ac any English accent, uh, like the West Country accent, it, phonetically, it would appear like a different language, like Scots, you know. It's just, I get sick of the LARPing of Scott Nats, you know, the levels they go to um, to try and justify their existence as a separate nation. Um, it's just really cringe. Um, that's just something that's happened recently. Um, I mean, like, I mean, I just find the whole regionalism craze of a minute just completely baffling. I mean, especially yeah. in England, where you have these, you know, oh, independence for the north of England, independence for Kent, independence for bloody Liverpool. It's just absurd. I mean, the, these regions really aren't... I mean, I say this as someone from Yorkshire. I've, you know, moved to the southwest. You know, it's a distinct region. I would never take that away from the regions of England. But it's really not that different. You know, it really isn't that different. And... I, I don't understand why people think anything substantially would change. Well, I suppose this is this is what we were discussing earlier, the sort of balkanizing and you know splitting apart of any sort of cohesive identity into these you know fundamentally fake modern identities. Like, oh yeah, you know, independence for Northern England. I mean, anyone who wasn't living in this you know current year would just find that you know ludicrous. You know, something to laugh about. Um, like a comedy sketch, not a sort of basis for a political movement. Although, of course, I, I very much doubt these movements would get anywhere if it wasn't for media platforming. You know, they're, they're deliberately set up with all this sort of astroturf coverage. And um, yeah, the one thing that won't be media platformed is anything to do with Englishness. And that's the one thing that, if directly played to, would. Uh, I won't get into it. it would be, don't, don't want to go from a tangent, but it would be uh, that's the one identity they're afraid of. You know, they'll that, and that's why, as well, they want to promote the balkanization and regionalism within England because they want to break up Englishness. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. I think we really do underestimate the level platforming can have. You know, the media are very, very savvy. I think, especially after the whole UKIP thing of who they give a platform to, you know. They'll give a platform to some obscure, you know, niche, uh, half shitposty Northern England independence Twitter account and write millions of articles about it and give them airtime and interviews because they know it's a, it's a distraction. You know, it's a, it's a meme. It's not a serious idea. But any sort of, you know, even rumblings of, you know, a cohesive national identity, anything that could really threaten their worldview, you know, they're just going to, ignore yeah i know especially the northern independence party thing like that was always just a twitter meme i don't and it's been kind of like i didn't expect it to but it's been kind of like promoted by the media um and it's, it's literally just one guy who looks like a mouse um and it's just <laughs> it's just um it's, it's just one guy and his laptop basically with the twitter account and the brit pop media got like this yeah, they've got a Discord <laughs> group. I think I think I heard like eighty percent of them are trans and from Liverpool or something like that. Like it's the most yeah, narrow Liverpool. kind of demographic possible. 
no, literally like non-binary uh, scousers. Yeah, yeah. It, and they're claiming to speak for, you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And um, what's more is apparently they were partially founded in reaction to the whole, you know, North FCB meet, which I don't get because I've always found it quite endearing, to be honest, mm. as an Northerner. I've always found, you know, uh, you'll eat nothing but pies and you'll love it stuff actually quite endearing in a way. Hmm. Um, so I don't I don't get the hostility towards that. Um, yeah, but it's, I it's, suppose it, it's, it, uh, it's John Bull, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's an endearing representation of no one who makes these North FC memes, you know, is doing out of hatred. It's an endearing representation of the British working class, you know. But they don't like it because they're yeah. like, oh no, the Northern is progressive and it's for trans yeah. rights and which maybe it is in Liverpool city centre or Manchester <laughs> city centre. But these, these are not accurate representations of the North in the yeah. same way that London, central London, isn't a, you know, accurate representation of England. Mm. New York isn't necessarily an accurate depiction of, you know, America. You know, I think... You can, cities, cities are basically their own category at this point, international cities, yeah. with their own culture and their own, you know... Uh, I think we should almost pragmatically support the Northern Independence. We should hijack the Northern Independence Party because um, yeah, it, it would be based if there was an independent North, you know, um, in reality, uh, based on the Northern electorate. Um, yeah, but <laughs> it's, um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And like, if uh, minor culturally uh, right parties got that much attention from the media, you know, it's just ridiculous. Because we actually, our, our ideas, or, you know, people of our, you know, uh, affiliation, our ideas actually have some popular support. Yeah. You know, they're not completely astroturfed by some uni student, mm. or I think he's a university lecturer, actually. Mm. He just came up with these, these most abstract, weird ideas and been given a platform and sort of a forced, you know, audience. Um, I just find the whole, the whole, concept really bizarre to be honest because it's like people sort of want to undo 300 years of history 300 years of centralization and the emergence of a nation state and just return to these kind of petty you know crisscross small states and think about somehow going to improve anything i mean if anything if you're a northerner and you have an independent north if you're living in durham or sheffield and the capital is in york or liverpool you're just going to end up resenting the scousers and you know the people in new york and you're going to want independence for your region from the north. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve regional frustrations. It doesn't solve um, disenfranchisement. You know, it's just a complete meme. This is the future they want, I guess, is a world, is more more medieval, uh, more feudal, the world of sort of micro-states. And, um, Which aren't self-sustainable, so you need yeah. sort of international... Uh, international you know, sort of bodies. Like the IMF. Yeah. yeah, quangos and uh, international corporations. This is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, you know, I'm like the Catholic Church, like the Catholic Church, yeah, in medieval era. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is the future they want. It fits perfectly into their, into their interests. Um, I'm, I've, I think, but they're we'll, also, oh, go on, go on. I was going to say, they're also careful though to pick and choose which regions they wish to, um, you know, again, I guess, give a platform to or allow a platform to. For example, Yorkshire, I don't think they're too keen on even Yorkshire becoming a big regional identity because they rejected the one Yorkshire devolution proposals and they want to carve up Yorkshire into 
four different uh, parts, I think, basically, because even Yorkshire is is something with, you know, it's <laughs> like like you, uh, Harry was saying that bits of the north are different and bits of England are different, but Yorkshire is Yorkshire is a uh, quite a cohesive thing. But they don't mm. they well, they won't even tolerate that because as I know carve it up, yeah, but 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 the the Tories Im- implicitly acknowledge this sort of identity that they're now tapping into in specifically in the north after uh, in, a, in a post-brexit world which they did uh, reasonably well in 2019 um because you know they've set up a headquarters in leeds so and like that's their red wall headquarters now i guess so um yeah they they know that these identities and, and they're important but um they they will pick and choose They'll pick and choose strategically. They they won't give anything, any identity which can be deemed conservative, even slightly like Yorkshire, basically is. They they'll say, oh no, no, we don't want that. We we want to break up, or we don't like. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I just don't understand it to be honest. It is I I think there's a fair amount of genuine resentment, perhaps in the north, that you know the lack of investment or whatever. That is a very fair, I think, concern to have. But that's nothing really about southerners. It's about, you know, the government, successive governments not, you know, obviously closing down the industrial base, which, by the way, isn't a problem that's relegated to the north by any means. You know, uh, we have a, a big, you know, car factory in Swindon, which has been under threat for quite a while. Um, this is this is not the problem with industrialization and the deindustrialization of England and the UK more generally. It's not a problem that's relegated to the north. It's just the north is obviously the most industrialized region. Um, so it suffered the most um, but I mean like I say I've lived in the north I've lived in the Midlands and I've lived in the south um, and I can still feel as if I'm in one country do you know what I mean I, I don't feel any sort of alienation from my you know co-patriots um, but obviously that's not they don't want that because obviously England as a unit itself is a sustainable geographical unit so you have to break it down into all these co-independent uh, micro states like Dom says, so you then have these huge hegemonic bodies that can, you know, basically oversee them. Um, just like, I mean, this is all has happened before in history, of course. You know, you, the nation state was something that had to be fought for, you know, violently in many cases. It had to be achieved. Um, and that reminds me, actually, Dom, you did make a very interesting tweet about that, I, I think. Um, I think it was someone saying, oh, yeah, the only real countries are like oh, yeah. France and England or, you know, something like that, because these are, you know, really ancient countries, whereas like Italy, Greece, these are all quite new uh, countries. Um, and I thought you made a really good point about that, because actually, in a way, it's the opposite, because these countries have to consciously decide to assert their identity as a nation state. You know, they have to reject all these other distractions and say, yes, we are an Italian people with an Italian country. Um, we're going to put all these microstates together and sort of build something. Whereas I see this like weird nostalgia for all these weird, you know, abominations from a medieval era uh, where you'd have like, yeah. one monarch, monarch rule over like seven different nations or whatever. Um, yeah. you know, everyone's seen a map of like medieval Europe where you've got just a complete crisscross of complete patchwork of all these tiny little enclaves and exclaves and, or, or whatever with no people having no representation you know no right to you know live alongside their you know natural 
ethnic and cultural brothers and sisters. Um, and weirdly, this is romanticized by both the left and the right. Yeah, it's the sort of map game her sentimentality and I have I guess my tweet was in response to that it's sort of I sort of sent something reactionary and regressive about these people that there was a tweet going around basically it was a map of uh, how Europe has been divided in the last uh, thousand years and uh, uh, people uh, conservatives right-wingers were sort of commenting on it saying oh Germany is a fake country the only real countries in Europe are England and France and I'm sort of I sort of sent sort of like a reactionary sort of a uh, a reactionary sort of impulse to that sort of so i had to comment sort of like just because these are newer countries doesn't make them any less real you know if i've got a huge amount of respect for sort of the romantic nationalism of the uh the 19th century um and i don't like i, I have been seeing more of this sort of nostalgia and sort of trad uh, circles for sort of austria hungary <laughs> which isn't so much, which I've said as I began this podcast, isn't so much different to modern Britain. But of course, it would be it would be nicer to be for disparate sort of ethnic and cultural and religious groups to be united by sort of a, a, a you know, a Catholic monarchy rather than a health service um, that's slightly yeah, less materialistic. Right. But it's still sort of, it's still, you know, the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary, it's still it's especially in an age of capital um it's not what you want i don't think i don't think you can really recreate the feudal era i mean maybe that's a debate for another time but um in in an age of uh, capital um it will just be it's what we're seeing now basically which is domination by international corporations um people like jeff bezos uh and uh, you know um elon musk or mark zuckerberg or whatever um, there are model, modern feudal lords. Um, I think uh, I should. we should end about that. I think we've been going for over an hour now. I know we started a little later, um, yeah. but it seems like a good, good time to cut off. So this was sort of, this podcast is sort of, um, I hope it's been, I hope it's been interesting. It's sort of, we've just been using sort of uh, my recent, I, it sound, the concept sounds more egotistical the more I describe it. Um, it, it was cultured thugs idea originally um but it's just sort of a way like we're using my tweets as a kind of discussion uh d- discussion references you know so so it's something that i'm kind of interested in or have knowledge on so i'll be more able to talk about it and we've just been using those as guidelines uh just to, to have a conversation talk about things that i've happened recently in politics but hopefully it's been interesting um uh so yeah um i'll I'll see everyone later and see you guys some other time